You can open your Bibles as you see. We're back in the book of Revelation this morning, and we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 6. So please turn in your Bibles to the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation. This week, Jamie and I were talking, and she asked me a great question. She asked, what do you like about our family culture? Each family has its own culture. Husband and wife come together to make a new family and raise children, Lord willing. And then we create our own culture. And so I thought that was an interesting question. A lot of ways I could go in answering a question like that might be something that you want to discuss with your husband or your wife. But it made me realize as I answered Jamie that what I really love is how I can find and share good things with my family. I really feel like I get to curate the whole world and take the best of everything and show it to my wife and show it to my kids and say, here are the good things that are excellent and noble and pure. Try to find things that are great places to take them on vacation, great works of literature to share with them, great games or stories. And so most of all, what I love to share with my family is God's Word. There's nothing more noble Nothing more pure, nothing more good than God's Word. And so here we are gathered together as a family, and I love to share with you good things, and nothing better to share with you than God's Word. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, as we come to your Word this morning, we are so thankful that we have it, a light that is shining in a dark place, a Word from our Creator that is full of promises that we can rest on, knowing that you, Lord God, cannot lie, that you have proven your faithfulness and your love throughout all of your acts in history. And as we come now to the final book of the Bible that tells us about the final acts that you will do in history leading to the consummation of all things in Jesus Christ, we pray that you would encourage and comfort us through faith in your promises, knowing that the day of the Lord is near. The day when faith becomes sight. The day when all of those who have put their trust and their hope in your promises are rewarded for that faith and that trust. And also the day when all of those who have chosen not to believe your promises or to heed your warnings will experience the judgments that you also have promised upon those who continue in rebellion and sin. Lord, we pray that as we look into your word, that the good shepherd the Lord Jesus Christ, who is present among us through his Spirit, will lead us and guide us in our thoughts so that we can present a heart to you that is wise, that is sober, that is filled with hope and peace, and a heart that also is full of compassion for those who are lost in this world and without you, who are without hope, and who just have that terrifying expectation of judgment hanging over their heads Lord, give us compassion to share with them the good news, that they can be saved, that they can join your family, that they can draw near to the heart of God through our blessed Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray, amen. In Revelation chapter 6, what we have is a detailed unfolding of the judgments that are yet to come at the end of the age. The book of Revelation is the ultimate book of the Bible. All of the promises of God, all of the prophecies of God come into the book of Revelation. And here we have the most detailed and full explanation of what is yet to come, what God's plan is for 
the future. God has a plan, and he has made it known to us, but not only to us, to the whole world. This book has been published and given. And as we look into Revelation chapter 6, what we've noticed is, is that it's following the same outline that the Lord Jesus Christ gave us when he was teaching about his second coming in the Olivet Discourse. In the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of Mark, in the Gospel of Luke, each of those synoptic gospel writers includes that very important discourse that Jesus Christ gave to us about the events that would precede his second coming. And as we have read through the six seals in the book of Revelation here, we've seen that that's followed the same pattern as what Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24 and the parallel passages. Now, let's refresh our memories with the fifth and the sixth seal, since it's been a couple weeks since we've been in here. Look at verse 9, and let's read from verses 9 down through verse 14, where we left off in our study. When he, that is Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So the fifth seal, dealing with the martyrs, is corresponding in the Olivet Discourse to what Jesus Christ revealed that there would be an increased time of persecution against believers, his followers, leading up to his second coming. And that here in Revelation chapter 6, we see the same thing. But this idea that The blood of the martyrs is what leads to the ultimate pouring out of God's wrath and judgment. It's not something that was new in this chapter or in the Olivet Discourse, but this is a theme that goes throughout the whole Bible. And Jesus himself referenced this in the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 23, verses 34 through 36. Now, the Olivet Discourse is chapter 24. But here in the previous chapter, he's announcing woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees, and he is predicting also here in chapter 23 the coming of judgment upon Jerusalem, which occurred in A.D. 70, but that judgment, that historical judgment that is referenced by the Lord Jesus, both in Matthew 23 and 24, is a type. It is a picture of the final judgment that is coming upon not only Israel, but the whole world in the book of Revelation. So here in Matthew 23, verses 34 to 36, Jesus said to the people of his own generation, "'Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town.'" And that's exactly what happened in the first century." 
The apostles, the prophets of the first century church, went from town to town being persecuted by the Jews, the Israelites, of Jesus' own day, his own generation. Verse 35, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, for those of us who live so far distant in time and geography from Jerusalem in AD 70, it's hard for us to imagine the horrors of that event. It was the death of the nation. It was a time of extreme suffering, something that we have never seen on that scale in our communities. And so it was like the end of the world for them as they were going through it. And notice how Jesus brings this judgment upon the Jews in the first century by bringing upon them the blood of all the righteous people who have been shed on earth. Going all the way back to Abel from A to Z, as we might say, from Abel to Zechariah. So this bloodshed is something that is brought upon them. And so that's the same pattern we see for the whole world in the book of Revelation. That God is going to send his children out into the world during this time. And there's going to be an increased persecution, an increased martyrdom that is going to bring upon that final generation, which we might be living in, all the blood. And so God pours out the fullness of his wrath in vengeance. You see, the martyrdom of the few throughout church history, it's only a few Christians out of all the Christians who have lived, a small percentage, who have been martyrs, they represent the persecution of God's children more broadly. For the scripture says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so you cannot attack God's children and expect him not to respond, attacking them verbally, attacking them economically, attacking them physically. You cannot attack God's children and expect him to not respond. But when the world mistreats God's children, when they abuse God's children, when they beat them and kill them, well then the wrath of the Almighty and of the Lamb is poured out onto that world of men. God has held back his anger for a long time. And as he's held it back, it's, it's built up, and it's built up like rivers that have been dammed. And when that dam is broken and those waters are unleashed, it will be a flood of wrath that no one can stand against. As Jonathan Edwards said, if your strength was 10,000 times what it is, If your strength was 10,000 times the strength of the most strong devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand the wrath of Almighty God. That's what we have here in the sixth seal. As the earth shakes and the sky is darkened, as everything that is below us and everything that is above us, all of this created order that we rely upon is shaken by the hand of the Almighty, what it creates among mankind is sheer terror. We will find out exactly what the historical fulfillment of these prophecies in verses 12 through 14 are going to be when they occur. For now, 
we recognize that they are the portents. They are the sign in the earth and in the sky of the fullness of God's wrath being poured out on those who have hated him. Now, further in Matthew, I'll remind you that when we're following the outline, when we come to the sixth seal here in verses 12 through 18, again, we're following the outline of what Jesus spoke in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. And so there we get the clue to understanding the timing of the sixth seal relative to the second coming of Christ when Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So that, I believe, is the same thing. What Jesus is talking about there is what Jesus has revealed here and John is writing down in Revelation chapter 6 in the sixth seal. And then what happens next in Matthew 24 is the coming of Jesus Christ. So the sixth seal indicates that when we're reading through the book of Revelation, while there's a general chronological flow in the judgments that are unveiled in chapters 6 through 16, it's not strictly chronological because the sixth seal is coming here at the end. And then as he goes back and gives more details of this whole time period of judgment, he's going to fill in what he skipped past in Matthew 24. Because what comes before Matthew 24, 29, I'll let you look at it on your own. We won't turn there this morning. But what comes before it is the time of trouble that Israel is going to experience at the hand of Antichrist, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, as he is called in other places in Scripture. And that he is going to attack the Jews during this time period with a ferocity that is unparalleled in history. You thought the Holocaust was awful. Well, the man of sin is going to be worse. And so the Jews are going to go through this terrible time, and it's immediately after that tribulation that then these things happen. And so the book of Revelation here in chapter 6, it's going to get to the man of sin, the abomination of desolation, and all the persecution that he unleashes on the Jews in chapter 12. And so you see that it's not following chronologically completely, although there is a general chronological flow through these chapters. That'll help us as we seek to interpret the details that are given to us throughout this section. Now, what we want to look at then this morning is the human response to these judgments, these terrifying judgments of God. And that's in verses 15 through 17. So in verses 15 through 17 is humanity's response, the whole earth's response to the wrath of the Lamb. And we see that here in verses 15 through 17. Let's finish out the chapter, follow along in your Bibles as I read it for us this morning. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The fifth seal and the sixth seal go together. Who is it that has persecuted the saints? Who is it that has put to death God's children? Well, it's the kings of the earth. 
It's the great ones. It's the generals. It's the rich. It's the powerful. These are the ones who have led the way in attacking God's children as they have been stirred up by Satan and led by his lies. Now, this list of the elites who are in the world, we don't necessarily use the same terminology to describe those who are our leaders today. We don't have kings. We got rid of that term in most places around the world today. And even those places that still use the term, it's mostly an honorary symbolic position and not a position of of genuine authority and political power. But we still have people who are in charge. We still have people who are sitting in seats of power, and that's basically what a king is, somebody who sits in the seat of power, someone who commands the military, someone who is the executive authority of the governing power, those who make the laws, those who judge the laws. While we've divided up some of these responsibilities and we don't have power concentrated in a king, we still have people who are functioning in that way. And then it goes on and talks about the great ones. These are ones who are not necessarily politically great, but they are great in other ways and have that influence over society. Influence. That's something that we use to describe people who don't necessarily have political power, but they have social power and many followers in the world today, influencers. And then we also see the generals, the military men, those who are in charge of institutions like the army, the CIA, and the FBI, these military leaders. And then the rich, those who own multi-billion dollar international corporations in our world. They didn't have the same type of thing then, but they still had the rich, and the rich functioned then the way that the rich function now, and money is power and gives a lot of influence as well. And then connected with the rich or the powerful, we still use that phrase, the rich and the powerful, and that's what we have here, the rich and the powerful. And then finally, it opens up to everyone in the final designation there, where it talks about the slave and the free, everyone. This is the response of the whole world, but it focuses on the response of those who are sometimes in our day called the elites. The elites, those who are in positions of power and influence. The world has started calling them stakeholders. And these stakeholders, whether they're stakeholders in economics or politics or society or academics, all these stakeholders, they get together and they try to decide how are we going to use the power that we have been given in forming the world the way that we think it should be formed. And how do the stakeholders do that? Well, they do it in an anti-God, anti-Christ satanic manner. You can see it with the elites as they meet and discuss at places like Davos, the World Economic Forum. These are the people that these verses are talking about. Now, many of the rich, many of the powerful, they've got bunkers. They've got fortresses. They've got military outposts where they can go and and hide themselves just in case the world goes chaotic. But what we see from this text is that the rich, the powerful, the politically connected, none of them, no form of power 
is going to protect in the day of God's judgment, in the day of God's wrath. They might fool themselves. They might tell themselves, well, if everything goes bad, maybe everyone else is going to be affected, but I've got enough power. I've got enough influence. I've got enough connections that I'll be okay. And God says, no, I'm coming for you, kings. I'm coming for you, great ones. I'm coming for you, generals. I'm coming for you, rich. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. The rich and the powerful, the elites, they are those who abuse power because they wish to usurp the place of God in his universe and to worship themselves instead of finding their place as creatures who are to be submitted to God's throne. That is the abuse of power that we see in the world. It comes from an idolatrous heart of worshiping oneself instead of worshiping the creator. Now, this is manifest among all people, but it's particularly odious in the lives of the rich and the powerful. The book of Psalms, you read through the book of Psalms, it's a, a wonderful book for all of those who are suffering. There are many places in Scripture that are written for sufferers. Last week we looked at John 14 through 16 as an awesome passage where we receive comfort from the Good Shepherd. The book of Psalms is also a book that's written for those who are suffering in this world. And one of the key themes of the book is that the one who trusts in God, the believer as we call him, is waiting for and expecting God's power to judge those who are abusing power and authority. For all of those who abuse the power and authority that God has given them, whether it's little power, like we have, or whether it's much power, like those who are at the top of the heap, whether it's little or much, you'll be judged according to how you use the power that God has given to you. Do you use it to serve others, to love God, or do you use it to serve yourself and to attack God? That's what every person will be judged based upon. And it is a great mistake to think that you can hold on to power apart from God. Economic power, political power, social power, intellectual power, any kind of power that we have. It's a great mistake to think that you can hold on to that apart from God. God will take all of the power that he has given All of the power that Satan has, all the power that Satan has bestowed upon those who follow him in his ways, he's going to take that away from them, and he's going to take the power and give it to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is going to order the world according to love, according to righteousness, according to truth. And you want to be on his side when he does it. Satanism, occultism, secularism, paganism, atheism. These are temporary means to power. Fleeting means to power. And those who are seduced by these roads to power will end up in the same place that Satan himself is going to end up. God is long-suffering. God is patient. He is forgiving and he is self-sacrificing. But he will not forever allow the world to go on the way that it is. When the time is right, when it's necessary in God's eyes, when it's good in God's eyes, then he will judge the abuse of power. 
as an expression of his goodwill and his justice. Look at verse 15b, second half of verse 15. Talked about the kings and all those who are listed there. What do they do? They hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. This is history written in advance. This is destiny. This is predetermined. This is what's going to happen. This is an echo of former prophets, prophets who wrote in ages past that John has read, he's studied, he's believed, that were inspired by the same Holy Spirit that is now inspiring John to pick up those threads and tie them together and to use those words in writing his book. And the one that I want to focus a lot on this morning is the prophet Isaiah. Here is a slide from, I don't know, 12 years ago. When I was preaching through the book of Isaiah here in our church, many of you weren't here for that, and the day of the Lord is a key theme throughout the whole scripture, throughout the prophets, and Isaiah, it's a very important idea in studying the book of Isaiah, and I bring it up here because notice verse 17, the great day of their wrath has come. And so as we look at the day of the Lord in the book of Isaiah, I want to go back to Isaiah chapter 2. You see that verse up there, Isaiah 2 verse 12. Turn back with me from Revelation, the short verses that we're looking at there, just three verses this morning, and I want to expand upon it by going back to its Old Testament roots and bringing out the meaning that is inherent in the words that John has brought over from his fellow prophets into his own book. And in Isaiah chapter 2, I want to start reading there in verse 6. Starts a, a new section here. You see the title of that section in the ESV translation. They often do a very good job with their titles. The Day of the Lord. So there we have it. For you have rejected your people, it says, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. This is a, a way to get power knowledge about the future, fortune tellers. They strike hands with the children of foreigners, these political alliances, a way to get power, political alliances. Their land is filled with silver and gold, economic power. There's no end to their treasuries. Their land is filled with horses, military power. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. Again, this occultic power, this religious power that's dark and evil. They bow down to the works of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Notice verse 10. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the heart of every believer who loves God and hates the pride of sin and satanic thought says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Continue. Verse 12. The Lord of hosts has a what? A day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, 
against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The idols shall pass utterly away. The people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he arises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caves of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? There's a lot here. This is a powerful passage, and I was glad to come back to it and bring it back before you after all these years. If man had kept God on top, then we could have all these other things. We could have political power. We could have economic power. We could have social power. We could have all of the power that is, there's nothing wrong with it inherently. But what is wrong is when we take what God has given to us and we make that created thing our idol, our God, what we worship, what we obey. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and wealth. Wealth is a wonderful tool, it's a wonderful servant, but it's a terrible master. God is a wonderful master. He is to be Lord in our lives. And this pride of man that takes everything that God has given and tries to use it against God is the most foolish quest that can be imagined. And so God has to humble mankind and bring upon him the consequences of the choices that he has made. God will show how useless all of the power and wealth in the world is when he comes to terrify the inhabitants of the earth. You know, sometimes the God of the Bible sounds like an enemy of mankind. It's not something that you hear from most pulpits, most preachers, You don't hear about God arising to terrify the earth. But we've got to get our conception of God from the word of truth and not from our culture. Notice the final verse here in chapter 2, verse 22. It's the application of the prophecies. Prophecy is immensely practical. So all this prophecy about what God is going to do in the future, so what? What does that mean? What are we supposed to do about it? And so often when we're thinking about what are we supposed to do about it, we're just thinking of actions. But you know what? So much of what the Scripture tells us to do isn't in the world of physical actions, although those are important and there is a fair amount of that, but so much of it is in the mind. What are you supposed to think? What are you supposed to believe? What are you supposed to choose? What are you supposed to value? And here we are told that we should stop valuing mankind. We should stop worshiping man as if he was sovereign, as if he was in control, as if he was powerful. 
Think about the most powerful people in the world. Take away their breath for two minutes and see what happens. Who enables their heart to keep beating? Do they do it? Does Satan do it? God does it. The most powerful people in the world are dust. The breath of life is in their nostrils. Their power is completely contingent, completely dependent. They have no innate power. None. Apart from me, you can do nothing applies in an interesting way to the unbeliever. How do we regard man? How do we fear man? How do we trust in man? How do we honor man with the honor and the trust and the fear that should belong to God alone? Luke chapter 22 verse 30 also speaks of this. This is a different context. Jesus is not speaking in the Olivet Discourse. But instead, this is Jesus on the road to his crucifixion. And as Jesus had the power of Satan, the power of darkness, the power of corrupt political officials bearing down on him to take him to his execution, and the women who loved him were crying and weeping as they saw his body torn by the whips, and they saw his head bloodied and beaten and swelling with the crown of thorns pressed into it, and carrying his own instrument of execution. What did he say to them? He said, don't cry for me. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children. Because he knew judgment was coming. And he talked about that judgment, and he says, when that judgment comes, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us. And to the hills, cover us. If you think the wrath of God was terrible when Jesus Christ was bearing it, think about what the wrath of God is going to look like when actual sinners are bearing it. If he didn't spare his own son, but crucified him, what is he going to do to those who trample on that mercy, who trample on that grace, who reject his clemency and his offer of forgiveness? The wrath of God will be terrible. That's what we're reading. God has told us beforehand because he doesn't want the wicked to perish. He wants them to turn from their wickedness and to trust in him. That's why he has given this warning. This is a day of warning. It won't always be a day of warning. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is the time when God will intervene in history to vindicate his chosen people, destroy his enemies, and establish his kingdom. Another way to say this, the day of the Lord is the day when all of God's promises come true. Everything that he said about justice is going to come true. Everything that he said about resurrection is going to come true. All of the promises of God we're waiting on When are they going to happen? The day of the Lord. That's when. If you read through the book of Isaiah, you read through the whole Old Testament, you read through the New Testament, this is the meaning of the day of the Lord. It's the time period. 
when God will, in history, make what is only known by faith now visible by sight. You won't need faith in the day of the Lord to know that God is a righteous judge. You won't need faith in the day of the Lord to know that there is a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. You won't need faith in the day of the Lord to know that there is a heaven and that there is a hell. It will be obvious. Now, the day of the Lord has a very different impact upon the souls of the wicked and the righteous. The wicked should dread the day, but they ignore it. The righteous long for the day, and they are careful not to ignore it, and they tell others about it, and they help other people to not ignore it. Now, the phrase, the day of the Lord, is used 19 times, that exact phrase, but it's used many, many times in other phrases that have the same meaning. Most often, it is shortened to just the day or in that day. And you have that countless times in the Old Testament. But the exact phrase, the day of the Lord, is used 19 times in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 2, like we have up here. Isaiah chapter 13, other chapters in the prophets. And then five times in the New Testament. In Acts 2.20, 1 Thessalonians 5.2, 2 Thessalonians 2.2, and 2 Peter 3.10. But the parallel phrases are found all over the place that allude to the same day. Like in Revelation 6.17, which we read just earlier in our message, the great day of their wrath. That's another phrase describing the same thing as the day of the Lord, the great day of their wrath. So it doesn't have to be a technical term, just the day of the Lord, but instead that is a broader term that can also be referenced by other terms as we analyze what the scriptures say about God's plan for the future. And so let's take a look then at Isaiah chapter 13. Moving on from Isaiah chapter 2, I want you to see the day of the Lord is not only against Israel, but it's against all nations as it's described in chapter 13, verses 6 through 16. The title for this section in Isaiah, this chapter, is Judgment on Babylon. And that's a good title. And that's going to be picked up on in the book of Revelation as Babylon receives two chapters in the ultimate book of the Bible about their judgment. And I want to read for you about this day of the Lord in Revelation 13, starting in verse 6 and reading down through the 13th verse. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. The kings, the commanders, the rich, the powerful, the elites... Those who seem to be strong, they will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble 
and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Now, this is the beginning of a new section in the book of Isaiah. The first 12 chapters are one large unit, and then chapters 13 through 23 are a next large unit, and so on throughout the book. It's divided up into these large units. Chapters 13 through 23 are all about God's judgment on the nations that were surrounding Israel in the ancient world. Moses had prophesied at the beginning of Israel's history, Israel, if you obey me, then you will be my special people. I will give you all the blessings of the covenant. You will have lots of children. Your land will be very productive. I'll just pour out upon you every blessing that I have to give. But if you disobey me, there's going to be famine. There's going to be armies that are invading you. You're going to lose your city. You're going to be taken into a foreign nation as captives. And so the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, that day when God stepped in to judge his enemies and to make his promises come to pass in history, that was fulfilled in the Assyrian conquest of Israel and the Babylonian conquest of Israel where the cities of Israel were destroyed, the people were killed, the survivors were taken off into captivity, and all that God had said, all of his warnings that he'd given them for hundreds of years through all the prophets after Moses, finally came to pass. That's why that's the Old Testament day of the Lord. Well, now the New Testament day of the Lord is not just for Israel, but it's for the whole world. And as God has sent out his warning and said, if you don't turn from your sin, if you don't accept my grace then I will come and destroy you. That is the day of the Lord that we're looking forward to at the end of the book of Revelation. And here in Isaiah 13, God looks forward. I think these words could apply in some way to the Old Testament day of the Lord, if that's the way I remember preaching it 10 years ago. But I think that ultimately they look at the day of the Lord that the book of Revelation is about. And as I read through it, you could see Well, that's exactly what Revelation 6 is about. Revelation 6 and Isaiah 13 are the same. Same spirit, same God, same judgment. I think the same event in history. Now, also, I want to look at Isaiah chapter 27, and we'll get to chapter 34 here momently, but turn ahead to chapter 27 of Isaiah. I'm so glad we studied Isaiah together years ago so that I have all of this to be the foundation for our study of the book of Revelation. And in chapter 27, verse 1, it says, In that day, there's our phrase, that day. That's shorthand. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Who's the dragon that's in the sea? Well, that's a metaphorical reference to Satan. And he'll be called a dragon, and we'll see how the sea is related to him as we continue in the book of Revelation. So here again, another reference to that day, the day of the Lord. Also look at verse 13 in chapter 27. It starts in verse 12 with a reference to that day, referencing what's going to happen to the river Euphrates and, and all of that. And then verse 13, in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. See, so often that day refers to the judgments upon the wicked, but 
other passages, while they're a minority, there's still a significant number of other passages like this one that refer to the vindication of God's people, the fulfillment of God's promises. Those who are trusting in God's promises will experience the blessing that God has promised to those who have trusted in him. So the day of the Lord incorporates both, both the judgment on the wicked and also the blessings for the righteous. Another verse that reveals this is chapter 28, verse 5. Look at chapter 28, verse 5. In that day, there's our phrase again, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. So you see that the day of the Lord isn't just the seven-year 70th week of Daniel, as we understand from our prophetic timeline, but it also goes into the new heaven and the new earth, the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, that these fulfillment of God's promises is all looked forward to as that day, the day when faith becomes sight. Also, one more verse here in Isaiah before we get to chapter 34. Isaiah 30, verse 26. Look at Isaiah 30, verse 26. Another positive verse. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold, as the light of seven days, in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. So, as far as judgment upon the wicked, in Revelation 6, he darkens the sun and the moon. But as for the blessing on the righteous, he brightens the sun and the moon. So there's this parallel and contrast between the way that the day of the Lord falls upon the wicked and the way that it is a blessing to those who trust in God. But I also want to see Isaiah 34. The day of the Lord is against Israel, it's against all nations, and it's for the cause of Zion. What does the day of the Lord do? It makes it so that God's city... Zion, Jerusalem, poetically called Zion, is exalted. Babylon is brought down. Zion is exalted. This is what happens in the day of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 34. Now, as we look at Isaiah 34, I want to look at more than just one verse here. Because Isaiah is going to paint for us a picture here on a a broad canvas of the fall of the earth in verses 2 and 3. And heaven, in verse 4, the death of people, in verse 3, the corruption of the natural world, and the withering of the universe, all together here in these opening verses of chapter 4. And then he's going to explain why this happens. And so let's read chapter 34. I want to read verses 1 through 7. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. So this is not just a message for Israel. It's a message that goes out to the whole world. The Lord is enraged, that's a strong word, against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies, what? Roll up like a scroll. Exactly what John records in the sixth seal. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, 
upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soul shall be gorged with fat. This judgment that is on the host of heaven, like we see in Revelation chapter 6, the reason for it is because the Lord is enraged and furious, as it says in verse 2. He has a hot anger that is explosive. Normally, we don't think of that as being a good thing. We look at people who have a hot anger that explodes, and we think, well, that person needs to learn some self-control. That person needs to learn some patience and some forgiveness and some love, some kindness and gentleness. Well, God knows all about patience and love and forgiveness and kindness and gentleness. But on the right day, on the day of the Lord, the furious anger will explode. And what does that look like? Well, he tells us. It's as if all the world is a sacrifice for sin. What you see at the cross and the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus Christ as he suffered as a sacrifice for sin, if you don't accept this sacrifice, if you don't flee to God on the basis of his mercy in the cross, then there is another sacrifice that is coming. And the Lord is going to bring his sword from heaven and he will slaughter mankind as a sacrifice for their sins. It's not my word. I wouldn't make this up. I'm just the messenger. The cross signifies judgment. If God didn't spare his own son, what will he do with unrepentant humanity? Come back to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6, verse 16. The people call on the mountains and the rocks to fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. There's another phrase that I think is worth talking about, the wrath of the Lamb. Who ever heard of a, a lamb being wrathful? A strange paradox, a strange phrase. And the strangeness of it gets our attention. The wrath of the Lamb, what is that? It's only found here. One author said, what a terrible thought. The gentlest of all God's creatures, angry. It is the wrath of love, scorned. The wrath of sacrificial love, which having done the absolute utmost for us and our salvation, tells us as nothing else could the certainty with which evil awaits its doom at the hand of God. If the Lamb is the one who is bringing the wrath of God, well, then you know that doom is certain. If it's the gentleness of God, if it's the love of God, if it's the mercy of God, if it's the condescension of God that brings the wrath, well, then there's no place to go. There's no hope. The great day of their wrath has come, they say, and it ends with that question, who can stand? This question of who can stand before God is a question the prophets like to ask often. Amos asked the question. 
Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. This picture of inevitable, unavoidable judgment. Isaiah put it this way. Isaiah 24. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of the heavens are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken, and the earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. You can't go hide in the caves. You can't hide in your bunker. There's no safe place because God sends an earthquake like no other earthquake that we've ever experienced. Everything that is solid underground is not. Everything that is constant in the heavens is not. And the soul is left without covering and without a foundation. And there's no place to hide. Maybe you're skillful. Maybe you're strong. Maybe you can flee from the terror and get into the pit. Maybe you can get out of the pit. But no matter where you go, if you climb up to heaven, if you hide in the mountains, from there God is going to pluck you out and stand you before his wrath. Terror, pit, and snare in the Hebrew are a poetic phrase. Pachad, pachat, and pach. And so the power of poetry is used to get the attention of the sinners. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears, is what Malachi asked. Joel said, the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And Isaiah, again, in the opening chapter of his book, said, the strong man will become tinder, his work also a spark. Thus they shall both burn together, and there will be none to quench them. The strong man, doesn't matter how strong you are, doesn't matter how prepared you are, doesn't matter how much money you have, how much food you have stored up, no matter what kind of survival skills you have, you will not survive the apocalypse. Years ago, I shared with you the book that was written by one of the strongest among us. His name is Sam Sheridan. When you're looking for who is able to stand, well, here's the world's answer, the disaster diaries. How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Apocalypse by Sam Sheridan. You see here, he's got his shotgun, he's got his backpack or whatever, and the comet is coming down, the world is ending, but man stands ready. Someone's going to survive, someone's going to be ready, that's what all of our movies tell us. We'll find a way, we'll survive, we'll get through it, we'll start over. Humanity, trust in them. God says no. The strongest will be tinder, his work a spark, and they will both burn together. Sam Sheridan, interesting guy, wilderness firefighter, sailor, cowboy, mixed martial artist, amateur boxer, EMT. If anybody can survive the apocalypse, it's got to be him. This is what one reviewer said about the book. At least when the apocalypse does arrive, I can take comfort that Sam Sheridan will survive to continue the existence of the human race and smartly researched nonfiction books. Another reviewer said, an upbeat and entertaining survival guide for the end of the world. Upbeat, entertaining. That's what we need to think about for the end of the world. 
And Daniel Wilson from the New York Times said, no matter what happens, it's clear that some of us will survive. And God says, you will not. You will not. What is the application? Not just what we do, but what are we supposed to think in light of this? Number one, God is sovereign. I think that's one of the main lessons we get from the book of Revelation. I'm not the type of preacher who's always preaching the sovereignty of God and finding it in every text and making it my hobby horse, but, I mean, come on. Can you blame me for bringing that out of this text? And when you think about the sovereignty of God, I want you to think about this quote from A.W. Pink. He lived about 100 years before me. And I think here in the 21st century, we're about the same place that he was in the 20th century. And he said, The God of the 20th century no more resembles the supreme sovereign of Holy Scripture than does the dim flickering of a candle, the glory of the midday sun. The God, lowercase, who is now talked about in the average pulpit, spoken of in the ordinary Sunday school and mentioned in much of the religious literature of the day and preached in most of the so-called Bible conferences, is the figment of human imagination, an invention of maudlin sentimentality. He had a way with words. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So, resist the temptation... Here's the application for you. Listen to this. I want you to resist the temptation to minimize God's sovereignty so that you can be more comfortable with him. You don't want a comfortable God. The comfortable God that fits in with our sentimentality and human imagination, he's a figment. He's not real. This God in the Bible, not comfortable. There's events that God brings into our life in His sovereignty that we're not comfortable with. And we can be tempted to say, well, that was just out of God's control. God would have done something if He could have, but, you know, He's only God. What can you expect? Don't diminish God so that we can be comfortable with Him. It's an evil world we live in, it's an evil time. Mankind is in the hands of God, and we don't know what awaits us in the future. It can be life. It can be death. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Solomon, in his wisdom, said it's an evil under the sun that the same thing happens to both the righteous and the wicked. It doesn't matter if you go to church. It doesn't matter if you serve others. It doesn't matter if you abuse your power and and hate God. You can die at any time in this world that we live in in this age. Death doesn't seem to make a distinguishing between the righteous and the wicked. It doesn't seem right, doesn't seem fair. And Solomon said, yeah, it's an evil time. And that's one of the, the hardest evils to bear in this time. But there's a day coming when the righteous are rewarded and the wicked are punished. You won't see it now. You'll see the righteous suffering. You'll see things that don't make sense, don't seem fair. Just wait. God has a day where all of his promises are no longer needed to be seen by faith. So the application to believers, wait for the day. Live like Jesus Christ. The application for the unbelievers, and for us as well, is to remember that just because these things aren't in full force in our world now, 
just because the earth hasn't been shaken and the sky hasn't been darkened, don't think that death is not happening. For those killed in war in Ukraine, for those starving in Africa, for those swept away in tsunamis, death is the same. Pain is the same. The only thing different is the scale. In the book of Revelation, it comes to everyone, everywhere. But right now, it comes. It comes. And so the people in the world, they need to be ready. Look around at your neighbors. Look around at your friends. We don't know when their time is. We don't know when death is going to come for them. Don't think, oh, I've got time. I can tell them later. You don't know. There's an urgency that we need to wake up to and that the world needs to wake up to. God gives us warning after warning. The world needs to listen. And we can join in and give that warning as God's children, as God's messengers.